0: hey everybody and welcome to another my js story uh this week we have isaac schluter from npm isaac do you want to say hello hello uh so people probably know you from npm and your work on node.js are there other things that people would recognize you for before we get started
1: um, probably nothing else that people would recognize me for. Um, I did, uh, I did a bunch of JavaScript before coming to node, um, worked on uh, YUI and a bunch of stuff at Yahoo, um, was on the YUI team very briefly. Um, what else made a bunch of websites for Yahoo and a couple of other slightly smaller companies. Um, yeah. And I make noise on Twitter as ICS.
0: Cool. Are you looking to expand your skills in mobile development? Have an idea for the next Angry Birds app? Then you need to check out iOS Remote Conf, produced by the same team that brings you your favorite devchat.tv podcasts like Ruby Rogues and iFreaks. Join us for two days of jam-packed fun and learning streamed to you live May 17th and 18th. Go check it out at iosremoteconf.com. Well, let's go ahead and start asking the questions. I sent you the questions ahead of time mm-hmm. um, and I've done a couple of these already, so hopefully people are pretty used to the format and we'll just uh we'll get rolling uh the first question is how did you get into programming or how did you get started programming
1: um so we always had uh when I was growing up we had computers in the home my dad ran his own a uh, small company nowadays it'd be called a startup but at the time it was just you know a company um so we usually had like some hand me down IBM computer from his office and uh we used to go to the library and get these books and then you'd type the program out of the book into the computer and play like a really you know crappy version of bowling or something with ascii text um and so that was that was kind of fun but i was kind of like well this is you know this is not that exciting really it's like sort of a long boring slog and then uh it was kind of cool that you could like change stuff and make the program break in interesting ways but um it wasn't until i got into high school and we were using graphing calculators in physics and math classes um i uh i had planned on going into like something something physics math something or other um and when I got into the, into the class and we we're using the graphing calculators, I realized I could, I could like, instead of studying and having to actually learn this stuff, I could just program it into my calculator as like, you know, an actual program. So it'd be like a, you know, the test would be some, um, uh, something where you have, you're given three variables and you have to find the fourth one or whatever in some equation. And I wrote a little program so you could plug in the three that you had and it would just spit out the answer. Um, and, uh, uh my, I remember Vividly, once my my physics teacher was this like uh, very intimidating um, Russian woman, and um, you know she I got a hundred percent on this one quiz that we got with showing zero work. Right, I just wrote the answers down. It was like the worst job of cheating that anybody had ever done. <laughs> uh, like didn't even, didn't even try to make it look like I wasn't cheating, but I wasn't. I mean, I honestly wasn't. Like I wrote the program that did this, and there was you know there was instead of a grade on the on the test, it was just like a me, um,
0: <laughs> nice. I was
1: like, ah, oh, geez, I wonder what I, 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 I was actually, my first thing I was thinking, I was like, oh gosh, did I get like zero on this because my program was wrong? And <laughs> I thought I thought it was a bug or something. And, uh, and she asked me, she was like, and she was obviously like very suspicious. Like, how did you get all the answers? And I was like, well, I, I just plugged them into my calculator and I got the answer. And she was like, Sh- show me. Right. She thought I maybe had like all of the, you know, the test answers in my, as just a text note in the, in the, uh, TI 82 calculator or whatever. And, um, so I showed her the program and she was like, Oh, Oh, well you wrote this. But like, yeah, it's like, okay, well you can use this, but don't share it with anybody. Um, and gave me, gave me the hundred on the, you know, gave me the A plus on that test. And, um, the funny thing was I'd already shared it with a bunch of people in my class and in other classes. And I realized, you know, I I was always extremely nerdy and and socially awkward and stuff. And, um, I realized like, oh, I could get like, you know, I could like make people like me by writing software programs. Maybe this could be like a, you know, a lifestyle choice. Um, and, uh, yeah, and it was kind of up from there. I went to school for, uh, CS physics and math and, uh, moved out to California and got some, um, not very good jobs and found my way to the web.
0: It's it, that, that's really interesting. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I, I I don't know, it reminds me a little bit of some of the things that I did, because when I was in uh, junior high school, I had a TI-85 calculator and I was doing a lot of the same things. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of people go, well, you know, I, I didn't I didn't have that opportunity when I was in junior high school, so I can't become a programmer. And for me, it's like, well, if a junior high or high school student can figure this out, then, you know, you can be cut out to be a a programmer too. You don't have to start early. You just have to start.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think the, uh, the fascination with getting started really early in life. I mean that your, your, your brain is a little more plastic earlier on. Um, and I think it's easier to get started younger. Um, but it does require a certain amount of, you know, privilege, right? Like I, I had, Computers seemed accessible to me because I had very sort of crummy, low end computers uh, always in the home as like a, a thing that you could just sort of mess around with and and um, and experiment with. And I think a lot of the like, let's get kids into programming, by making programming accessible is actually sort of um, I, I think it's sort of counterproductive sometimes because the the inaccessibility of it, the like you're not supposed to be doing this, like it always felt like I was getting away with something when I like you know, figured out a new way to make the computer do a new thing. Um, and it was not accessible. It was, it was DOS. It was like, it was like pre windows, IBM computer era. Um, and the programs that we had were extremely limited. There was like floppy disks. Some, some programs had like two or three floppy disks that you had to be swapping between to do different things. Um, and it, but it is, it did require that I had, you know, a stable home life and a decent enough high school that had a physics class and, uh, you know, could could get a, a TI-82 calculator or, or I think, upgraded to a TI-86 at some point. Which, like, you know, it's funny that the TI line of calculators, graphing calculators, like they haven't actually progressed that much, um, and they're like, I, I don't know, they're they're in an amount of compute that you probably find on like the average like Nike shoe for kids. Like it's. It's totally laughable how, how, like, how limited those machines were, but, um, by today's standards. But, um, uh, yeah, I, I think that, you know, every kid should have a, a, a little, you know, basically indestructible computing device that they can like mess around with and just sort of get over that initial hurdle of saying, this is magic to saying, well, this is just a complicated toaster and I can figure out what all the buttons do. And there's just a lot more buttons than the average toaster. Um, I think that that's actually a mind shift that I, you know, as I meet adults, like a lot of adults still think that there are gremlins in the machine that like, like them or dislike them or get angry. And it's like, Oh no, it's just, it's not magic. It's just a toaster. Like, even if you never get into programming and never become like a computer scientist, I feel like that's sort of the big paradigm shift of just seeing a computer as like a, a a thing rather than a box of magic. Um, is really what makes it accessible. It's not like having a great programming language or like, should we be teaching kids Ruby or Python or JavaScript? Like whatever, like teach them assembly. They'll figure it out. Like it's just, they, they have to just have access and have a lot of free time to mess around.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to go on to the next question. The next question is how did you get into JavaScript? Um,
1: so I, um, I went to school thinking that I would do more like hardware and uh engineering, like actual engineering, not not what we software developers call engineering stuff. Um and the the physics of it and like solid state design and and uh nanotechnology and and just kind of like where where hardware was going and robotics were going was much more fascinating to me at the time in my um when I was about 20 years old. Um and I, I assumed that moving across the country and you know it would be easy to just get a job and then I could, you know, go back to school and get my master's degree and and get a master of engineering degree and then like actually pursue, you know, hardware design and that kind of stuff. Um, what I found was I moved out to California and as we were driving across the country, the first dot com bubble burst. So there were not a ton of jobs to get. Um I ended up doing tech support as this uh, little software company in San Diego. Um, and I didn't actually have enough money to go to, to, uh, grad school. And I also didn't have enough like stuff to mess around and actually learn. I mean, you can't like, you can't just like in your free time on a limited budget, do fun hacking experiments with microprocessors. Like you, you know, I mean, you, I guess you can kind of can now with like Arduino and, and Raspberry Pi and stuff. There's a lot of very low end stuff that you can, you can get and mess around with, um, on that side to like learn hardware. But, um, I didn't, you know, that, that didn't exist at the time. And I didn't have like a lab or access to one or access to a college anymore. So what I did was I just sort of was like, well, you know, the internet is a thing. Um, I have a, a computer not a great one, but it's like enough that it can load web pages and it has a text editor. Um, so while I was, while I was working at the software company, I was sort of learning um, like I learned VB there. I, I did some, um, everything I'd done before in college was all in like C and C plus um, And uh, um, also I saw that there was a sort of, you know, web revolution happening in the early two thousands. Right. Where like, there were these interesting people having deep thoughts and writing hot takes on their blogs about, um, which were not on medium. They were just on like individual websites that you had to like, you know, actually register a domain for and stuff. Um, but they were talking about cool stuff like CSS and PHP. And I was like, well, this is, I kind of like, you know, I want to talk about cool nerdy stuff. Like I, I want to, I want to have friends on the internet. How do I become one of those people? Um, so I sort of set my mind to that. Um, I, uh, ended up working my way into a a job at the software company where I was doing, managing our website and all of our documentation and writing doc, writing help docs and stuff. I'd kind of graduated from, um, tech support into, into sort of knowledge management, um, web development role. And, um, from there, I just, yeah, I just sort of very aggressively tried to learn all that I could, ended up getting, um, uh, recruited to a job at Yahoo in 2006 and um working at job working at Yahoo. I kind of think of Yahoo as my, my post-grad work. Like they're not an amazing company. They are an amazing school. Like if you're an engineer and you're early in your, and it's early on in your career, like go, go work at Yahoo. Like just don't worry that it's not the coolest tech company in the world. Um, you'll learn a lot They're They invest, or at least they did in, you know, 2006 through 2010, um, they tend to invest a lot in engineering, talent, engineering skills, and you'll make a lot of connections and learn a lot of stuff and just be able to operate at a scale that like very, very few companies can do. Um, I think probably working at Facebook or Google or Microsoft are all kind of similar. Um, and I I think especially earlier on in your career, it's, it's way better to be in that sort of an environment with that sort of structure. Um, I, I got a lot out of that and that's really where I, fell in love with, um, with JavaScript and with bash, I, I made the switch whole hog from, you know, being just always working on a windows machine to pretty much always in some kind of Unix environment. Um, and, uh, you know, and then that's also nice cause the file system lies in a little bit more <laughs> well documented ways. Um, I don't want to throw Microsoft on the bus. Windows is fine, but, uh, uh, I, I like the, I like the PostX API. It's nice. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, I got increasingly frustrated. I, 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 wrote this, I worked on this project where we had a template, um, a templating system that had to have had to be able to pre, um, uh, precompile the front end template in the uh, backend. And then once it was delivered to the front end, it had to be able to update dynamically based on Ajax calls or whatever. This is all like, you know, we were, Nowadays, people have things like React and Vue.js and, and Ember and Angular and all the rest, Polymer or what have you. But like, you know, you forget, like we were rubbing sticks together back then. I mean, it was, <laughs> this was not something that was done. It was just like, is it an entire single page app, which by the way, 80% of your users can't access at all, or, um, is it entirely server side driven? And then anybody on a slow network connection has a really terrible experience. So it was like, that didn't seem satisfying to me. So I wanted to like, I wanted to have one template that could be parsed by both PHP and JavaScript. And you could feed data in from both PHP and JavaScript based on web, uh, web service requests and kind of update dynamically. And so I, I did it. We, we built this thing, um, for a website that was actually pretty successful, um, called Yahoo buzz didn't last that long uh the business decisions made by yahoo around that time were i, I think um bad they were <laughs> they were they were not the best um that was two ceos ago or three so it's it's probably you know fine i'm sure i'm sure whoever made those decisions got paid a lot of money for them um but the uh uh the takeaway that i got from that was like gosh this sure is a pain in the ass to like have to make even a, you know, even the the smallest, like change to this parser I have to make in two places. And I had this like line by line port between JavaScript and PHP. And I was trying to like not use any features of JavaScript that weren't, that couldn't be easily ported to PHP. So it was like extremely limiting and just this uh, very difficult thing to maintain. I was like, this is stupid. JavaScript is a real programming language. I should be able to do it on the server. There's there's no reason to have to be switching back and forth. Like, I I mean, actually at the time I was much better at PHP, I probably would have been sort of happier to have PHP on the client in some fashion. Um, but it was like, yeah, that's not happening. So let's just like accept reality. Put put JavaScript on the server and like that's something we can actually control. So I got involved with, um, a group called server JS, which ended up rebranding as common JS, uh, around that time. Um, So SpiderMonkey had been uh, um, open source for quite a while. That's the JavaScript engine in um, Firefox and Mozilla. Um, uh, WebCore, it was part of WebKit, which I think had been open source not that long before that. After WebKit got open, maybe WebKit was always open source. I don't know. Maybe I just wasn't aware of it. Um, So Google came out with their browser Chrome around that time, and they open sourced V8, which was this like, uh, you know, the, the V8 at the time, again, by today's standards, like it was like banging rocks together. But, um, at the time it was like way, way more fancy of a VM than, than any other JavaScript engine on the market. I mean, the other, the other kind of go-to thing for embedding was, um, was Rhino on on the JVM and, um, V8 actually outperformed, well, You know everything outperforms Rhino. Like reading the code and then telling the person the answer, kind of outperforms (laughs) Rhino in some cases. Uh, um, That's exaggerating That's probably not accurate. Um, But uh, uh, yeah, V eight was was really really impressive. It's sort of like it set a new, a really a new standard. And you see very quickly, um, Spider Monkey started, you know, implementing a lot of the same kind of innovations to to catch up. Um, JS Core same kind of thing. And then Microsoft started coming out with better JavaScript engines. It really kicked off a a new wave of like, yes, JavaScript is fast enough to actually do real stuff in. Um, So I started playing with how to, you know, how to embed V8 in something. And I wanted, I wanted something that was as easy as PHP, but in JavaScript. Um, That led me to a project called K7, which uh, is also then how I learned about uh, Narwhal, which was sort of the, uh rhino was a rhino based uh server-side js platform i did some stuff with that i sort of messed around with it and um like i said got involved with the common js group and i uh, had a bunch of um discussions i mean we're talking about like you know probably less than two dozen actual human beings involved with it at this point in a, in a serious way um, and then node came out Somebody i gave a, a tech talk and so i was like hey have you checked out node and i was like yeah well I, I tried it, I downloaded it and it didn't build on a Mac. So I, I figured it was broken. Um, I would never go anywhere. That was version like 0.0.2 and they're like, well, maybe you should try it again. It it builds on a Mac now. So I, I went, I downloaded it in like version 0.0.6. Um, and it worked and I was like, I read the docs. I was like, okay, this is, this is actually better. So I started saying, all right, well, so I'm going to build my, my server side JS web platform on top of this node thing. Um, there was about a couple of dozen people on the on the Node.js mailing list, um, and so I, I set about uh, trying to like port the module system into Node. Uh, we got a I, what is still actually very pretty close. There's been a lot of like optimizations and a few little tweaks here and there with the module loading paths, but like the core bit of of what is a Node module hasn't changed that much from like the zero dot one. Node days, um, so it's been extremely interesting to see, like, just how resilient, how what a good design that that actually really was. Um, I'm not taking credit for it. This is the the design came mostly from, um, if I remember correctly, uh, Chris Kowal and Kevin Dangor from the, the Server JS group. Uh, sorry, Common JS group. Um, Common JS was actually we use it now to be like synonymous with the model with the Node style module system, but like. At the time, CommonJS imagined itself as a, a body that would produce specifications for all server-side JS platforms, plural, um, with the assumption that, like, you know, we would specify what the file system API is, and then it could be implemented using Rhino or using um, Node or using V8 or using whatever else, um, oh, that's you know, and thus, yeah, thus that. Common, right? And then also, you know, you could also run it on the browser. And like, uh, uh, Mozilla had this thing. Um, I don't know if they still do. They had some like new platform for making extensions to Firefox. Um, I'm, the name escapes me at the moment. And so that was also trying to, you know, implement the same like specifications for stuff. And I think coming from the JavaScript community and people who have sort of been around the process of how you build web browsers. Um, and how you get things into the DOM specification that made a lot of sense. Right. But like for developing a server side platform, starting from first principles, it makes no sense at all. Like, so it was, it, it got very difficult to get anything done in that group. Um, and without kind of the overwhelming weight of there already being an internet and already being multiple competing web browsers, like none of them were popular. So we could just throw them all away, you know? Um, And node very quickly was like, well, this is the one with like a module system that works and uh, it's really fast to start up and all the others are using Rhino. And so they take like three seconds to even start your program running uh, or, or, you know, hop into a REPL. So, so that really sort of coalesced that, that sort of became the center of gravity of server side JS very quickly. Um, And then common JS just came to be the, the module system, which was really the only thing that Node ended up taking from the the common JS specifications. Um, everything else was either too like dependent upon synchronous I/O or too divorced from the the naming conventions of POSIX, which um, most of the early Node people, you know, had a very strong preference for. Like, I, I think a lot of um, uh, Ryan Dahl's aesthetic is still very baked into node.js um you know the fact that we have the fact that the second d in reader is not capitalized is like yeah that's because the sys call is reader all one word and like read file the f is capitalized because that's not actually a system call and like you're kind of expected it sort of presumes that this is the world that you work in right you're a systems programmer which most JavaScripters are not. And that's arguably kind of a downside, but what it did was it attracted a lot of those system programmers out of, um, out of other languages, out of using, um, you know, away from using Ruby or Java for these kinds of things, because it was closer to kind of the, the C lingo that they knew. Um, I think, uh, you know, a lot of them still just, rationally or irrationally despise javascript and there probably you know there's lots of good reasons to not use javascript for that i think rust is probably a better fit for a lot of systems programming um, but if you know if you can have the luxury of managed memory like yeah javascript's a perfectly fine language and node's a pretty good implementation of javascript on the server um, i am probably being overly modest it's very good it's not just pretty good it, it's it's actually a, probably the best like true to the spirit of what JavaScript is and also true to the spirit of like what you want to do on a server. Um, so, uh, with these like hundred or so people sharing stuff on a mailing list, it very quickly got very difficult to like actually use anybody else's code and to know what worked in which versions of node cause they were breaking changes like left and right. Um, so I wrote a package manager to basically just script all of the things that I was doing when somebody would share a module on the mailing list. Um, you know, download from this Git repo and then run, make, and then copy this thing over into this place and make sure you have this version of this dependency in the right place. And it was just like, all right, let's just have like a a package file that says what to do. And then a script that reads that file and does the right thing. And that was kind of the, the, the birth of NPM. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I sent a bunch of pull requests to add package.json files to various people's repositories on GitHub. And, uh, before I knew it, they were doing it themselves and, and, So we we built a registry so that people could publish directly into it instead of uh, pulling stuff down from GitHub because that was kind of – that made it more challenging to know what was available. Um, Having a registry meant that you could just sort of – it would know where to find everything, right? It didn't have to, like, map module names back to a Git repo.
0: I I want to stop just for a minute because I think it's really interesting and telling. Um, A lot of people, they look at, you know, some of the things that you've done with NPM or some of the other systems out there and they're just like – you know, I just don't know how you could have ever built an NPM, but NPM started out as a series of scripts that you used to make JavaScript packages manageable, and that was it. And then the yeah. registry was kind of an afterthought. Gee, it'd sure be nice to have a list of these. And 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 I find that a lot of these software projects, especially in open source, that's kind of where they they kind of grow out of these things. And mm-hmm. And I want to just call this out. You know, if you've got something that you think will be useful that you want to pull together... I mean, Isaac started with like the simplest thing. It's like run, make, you know, pull from GitHub. I mean, it was like a couple of different basic things. And then it kind of grew into, okay, now we need a registry. Oh, it'd be really nice if we could do dependency management. Oh, it'd be really nice if we could do these other things. And those things kind of got bolted into NPM as you went.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the um, the first version of like the, the registry, such as it was, was a... Um, a repository I had called NPM data, which um, the idea was in order to publish your package, you would, you would send a pull request to this NPM data repo. And, and it seems to be working okay for homebrew, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, that's a, that's a process that people know. Um, or when I say pull request, I mean, um, emailing me a patch because there were not yet pull requests on GitHub. Um, so, yeah, but I, but I also was feeling like, you know, there's, this is going to be a problem. I, I come from Yahoo and, and one of the things at, um, at Yahoo that was, that made it really enjoyable to create software there was they had this system called Yinst and then there was, a another, uh, separate tool called, uh, dist tools. And basically what you would do is you would, you'd run Yinst create to create a package, and then you'd run this uh, dist tool to publish it up to the dist servers. And um, my the thing that's great about that is that there's no, um, there's no single point of friction, right? So you don't have like a, a cabal of people who are like, well, in order to publish a new version, it has to be, you know, in order to create a new module name, you have to like get sign off from the, um, you know, the elite team of name managers, right? Um, there's trade-offs to that. Like there are actually benefits of having a cabal system because you know, there's no, um, there's no bad modules in pair. Right. But the flip side is there's very few good models in pair. Like it's, it's sort of dead on the vine because without that ability to explode, um, it's very difficult to grow. I think homebrew, um, homebrew is a little bit of a, an interesting case just because they have, you know they they had solved this problem with a with a cabal of people but also with a huge number of people sort of swinging hammers to make that happen um and you see similar things if you look at like um like debian or you know other sort of system level package managers i think they're the 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 requirements that things have um a little bit more like predictability to them and a little bit more order to them is much better uh, it's it's a it's a bigger win um but when you're talking about a programming level a programming language level package manager like anything that stops somebody from publishing something ends up just being a cost right it ends up just sort of slowing down the whole community from growing so the the goal was to get to something where people could publish and manage ownership of their packages um of their package names without without me being involved like i i really did not want to get involved almost
0: ever right yeah um and, and that makes sense it, I mean Ruby gems is the system that i'm I'm more familiar with just because I had dealt with it for longer though I have lately been getting much more into JavaScript and using npm and yeah just the fact that I can kind of uh, push publish you know whenever I need to and not have to wait for Isaac to get around to accepting my pull request or you know um, you know apply my patch to the registry yeah that makes a ton of sense mm-hmm so, um, so yeah. So the question was, how did you get into JavaScript? And we kind of got yeah. this this <laughs> introduction to where npm came from, which was fascinating. So I didn't stop you, but uh, you know, what was it about JavaScript that made you go, "Oh, I I want to be involved there"?
1: Um, I think it was just sort of the the inevitability of the language, right? Like, I'm I've always kind of been a bigger fan of like get stuff done languages rather than seek perfection languages. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that there's a place for both of them. And I I don't want to try and make like a, a, you know, judgmental, like normative thing here. But like, if you look at a language like, um, like Haskell, Haskell is a very beautiful language. It's, it has a, a very sort of like interesting and compelling um, thesis to it. And everything about it is sort of chasing that sort of perfection. Um, But like, on the other hand, if you look at the languages that are the most successful in, in the history of software development, like they're not that Um, you've got C, which is basically just like, well, this is what a processor can do. We need a scripting language that we don't have to write assembly by hand. Here's a not very good language that lets you do that. Like, and it's remarkably, remarkably, um, uh, you know, popular. It's, it's the most popular programming language by far ever. Um, it's the thing that runs on every computer everywhere. Now, that being said, it's also hideously unsafe. It's very difficult to read. It's kind of impenetrable. It's got a lot of like little weird edge cases. Again, I'm I'm very, um, I'm very excited about Dart. Um, because I think it hits sort of what, what, uh, you know, what C++ should have been. It's, it's actually like a C that's a little bit better. You said Dart. Did you mean rust? Sorry. Rust. Yeah. Not dart. Darts a whole different thing. Yeah. Um, thank you. Uh, yeah. So rust is, um, you know, rust also feels very like getting stuff done. Like it, it has an ideal, like it has a certain sense of like, okay, you know, memory should be owned and everything should be cleaned up and, and whatnot. But then there's all, there's like tons of little trap doors. It's Like, Oh, you need to go in that room. Well, you're not really supposed to, but like here's a way you can do it if you really have to. Like, just right. just put the word unsafe so at least you know that you're doing something <laughs> that's yeah. probably unwise um and uh um with javascript and with and actually i've had a similar sort of experience with bash where like every time a new cool shell comes up and whether it's like zsh or fish or whatever i'm kind of like well that's cool and all but like uh, every time i log into a machine it's got bash like why don't i just get really good at this one you know or with um with JavaScript there, there have been sort of like compiled to JS languages that predate CoffeeScript, although is probably one of the more popular of them. Um, and every time I've considered using them, it's kind of like, yeah, that's cool. I like this feature. It'd be nice if it was in JS, but like, I need this web page to load, you know, on these browsers and I can get it done in JavaScript. So like who cares that it's a bad language? I don't care. Um, you know, and I, I sort of also liken that to like English as a spoken language. It's it's very much a mongrel, but like you know, there's no there's no like central committee that decides which which words in English are valid words. And so we do like really interesting creative things with it, um like turning nouns into verbs and you know, all kinds of other like weird things that like the older generation gets to kind of like poo-poo and turn their nose up at, and the younger generation just uses like it's just a normal part of the language and it evolves very quickly. Um, while still being extremely popular and extremely intelligible in, in a lot of places. And I think, um, you know, a lot of spoken languages sort of exhibit this quality because humans, we we have an actual thing we wanna do, right? Like nobody's going around speaking lojban on a day-to-day basis to communicate. Like they're speaking lojban because they wanna like enjoy the process of speaking lojban and that's, you know, cool. Um, but that's not really a language, it's a hobby. And I, I sort of feel, similarly about Haskell, about a lot of languages that are, you know, a lot of lisps, a lot of things that are like really more focused on the ideological purity rather than, or or like sort of having an effect on your brain rather than just like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Like, I just want this thing to show this button. And when the user clicks on it, I want to make this entry in a database, like get out of my way. Just let me do that. Um, and that, that sort of mindset I think lends itself well to you know, shall we say, uglier languages like like JavaScript and PHP and Perl and
0: Bash and C. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Um, I I kind of want to. I know we're we're going a little bit longer than uh, I kind of set aside for this, but um, I do want to talk a little bit more because the next question is, what have you done in JavaScript that people would recognize? And we, I guess I mentioned all that. <laughs> yeah, we did. Um, I'm a little bit curious though if if you're uh, willing to go into it a little bit um, with NPM and uh, the node ecosystem. One of the things that I, th- I thought was very interesting that you have done is creating NPM Inc. And yeah. um, you know, sort of how do I say this? Cause people have this funny idea about commercializing open source and it feels like that's kind of where NPM went I mean, it's still free if you want to just use it the way you've always used it. But now there's this company behind it, and you're doing all of these things that allow people to use it in different ways if they're willing to pay for those features. And so I'm curious, like, what what made you decide to make that decision, and what kind of feedback have you gotten, good and bad, regarding that?
1: That's a that's a really good question. I think, um, you know, we we tend to hang our hat on a lot of like these ideas that, like, a particular social organization is good or bad, like, by nature of the organizational structure rather than, like, the people involved or in the situation or whatever, like, you know, people say things all the time about this, about, like, whether it's, like, a, a religion or a church or, you know, oh, I'm into religion but not organized religion and, like, well, okay, well, you know... <laughs> Uh, and I mean, I, I, I guess that, you know, everybody who says things like that, they mean a specific thing and what they mean is totally valid and whatever. I'm not trying to like, I'm not trying to get email about that. Right. But (laughs) But like in, in open source, we're no different, right? Like we, we do a similar kind of thing where we say, um, a foundation is, is morally good and a company is morally suspect. Um, I think that humans are morally good and humans are also at the same time, in very complicated ways, morally suspect. And it's, it's right and reasonable to, um, to give them the benefit of the doubt, but also to kind of trust, but verify, uh, bad behavior happens at, you know, there are, there are bad foundations and there are good companies and vice versa. Um, and so when I, when I set about trying to figure out like what do we do about NPM, we, the, the registry was running for about four years. Um, the project was just my personal side project on nights and weekends. The, the registry was running on uh, donated infrastructure. And, um, it got to the point where basically I was faced with the decision. It was like, look, you can either take this thing somewhere else or you can start paying us for it. And here's how much it costs. Um, and so I, I was like, oh, okay, well, so I got to figure out how to pay this new, you know, I got to figure out how to pay this bill. And it's the, the company that was running it, um, it was originally Iris couch. They got purchased by Nojitsu, jitsu. I'm like, that's a fine thing to, to put to somebody. And, and, you know, it gave me plenty of time to sort of figure it out. Um, and so I looked around and, and also there had been a bunch of, um, outages and downtime, which they were sort of like, they were struggling to figure out how to keep the registry up. Cause they didn't want to have it go down. And at the same time they were like, well, this is actually going to cost us a lot of money and we can't monetize it. So like, what are you doing here? Like either, either let us charge for this thing or take it somewhere else basically, or start, you know, figure out another way to pay the bills. So I, um, I looked at my options. I was working at join on, uh, running the node project at the time cause Ryan had moved on to be a, a professional hipster. And, um, <laughs> we, uh, um, so my options were I could run it inside of Joint as like a Joint project, but it wasn't really like it wasn't really in, there wasn't any real synergy with what Joint was doing. Um and handing it handing over my baby seemed like, you know, to this company that had its own sort of whole large thing that it was doing just didn't feel right. Um I could have created a foundation for it, the, you know, call it the NPM Foundation. It was before the Node Foundation existed. Um, or create a uh, a standalone entity um, on my own, like a, a company. Right. And the the situation was not really a good fit for what a foundation is good for. Foundations have the basically the way a foundation works is you get a bunch of companies to put a, mon- a bunch of money in a pile, and then that money is used for whatever the purpose of the foundation is. Um, and when the money is gone you go back to those companies and you say, okay, well, we did the thing that you wanted us to spend money on. Give us some more. And so every year you're like basically in a constant state of fundraising. Um, If your costs are relatively stable, then that's totally fine. Or if they're, if your costs are growing with the, along with the, the, the benefit to the member companies, then that's totally fine. Um, I think it makes a lot of sense for the node foundation. I think a, you know, node Inc would not actually be as good a fit because then that's like a, how do you even monetize a server side platform like that without being evil and B why would IBM put money into node Inc? Why wouldn't they just buy that company or, you know, um, and also, like, the company doesn't really need to grow that much. Like their, their costs are relatively fixed. Okay, they need to increase the number of developers working on it. There's increasing like legal fees for IP protection, whatever, whatever. But like that's all pretty straightforward and very easy to predict. When you're talking about a service that you're running, on the other hand, and especially a service that you're running where the growth of that service is exponential, um, the only way that you can possibly keep up with paying for that is to somehow monetize it. And because if you can tie the, if you can tie the revenue to that exponential curve, well, now you have an exponential source of revenue and that's something that you can very easily get somebody to invest in, right? That's something that you can actually use to hire people to make it continue to grow. And, and the, the interests are all aligned. If the registry were to go down, um, you know, and just disappear, like all this company disappears and true ventures and Bessemer venture partners are like, very, very invested in making sure that doesn't happen. And I have a bunch of stock riding on it, right? So you have all these people who are like, now their jobs depend on it. They're gonna make it work. Um, Whereas with the foundation, like the member companies can't stop hiring lawyers to protect their investment, to protect their IP or whatever, but like individual contributors can just leave. And that's actually kind of the way it's supposed to work, right? You you sort of expect individual contributors to move on and new blood to come in and so on. and this wasn't just a matter of sort of keeping the NPM open source project running. Really, it was the service that everybody's depending on. Um, that's the much bigger part of it. And since, uh, since we founded the company in 2014, so the, the paid products that we've added, I think, don't really don't infringe on the, the open source value that we provide or the value we provide to the open source community.
0: Um, I agree. And, and the reason that I say that is because, as I said before... I just kept using npm the same way I always did, and it works.
1: Yeah, uh, it works better actually. <laughs> uh, people now frequently don't realize that there's a registry even because it just works. It's like, well, where do you think these models are coming? I don't know GitHub, my computer, magic. <laughs> um, so, uh, but anyway, the the uh, the best way to set up. So, like, companies are not companies are amoral, right? They're not actually good or evil people can be good or evil, but companies are motivated by financial incentives Mm -hmm. and motivated by strategic incentives. So if you have a company that the only way that this company can stay in business is to let's say poison the drinking water of an entire state or, you know, just to pick a or like build a pipeline of, of toxic oil through a bunch of people's land. Like then that company will do that. And if, If the current, like, if the current people running that company uh, are not evil enough to do, to like make peace with that kind of terrible action, the company will find somebody else who is, or they'll just go out of business and some other company will come in and do the evil thing, right? So it's like, yes, you should be suspicious of corporations. You should look carefully at what their incentives are. But the same thing is also true in the other direction, right? Like, if you look at like, like, what if, what if Mozilla decided to start charging, um, you know, sending everybody who uses Firefox a bill for using Firefox or, you know, suing anybody who downloads something that is like, you know, morally or or is like in violation of copyright or something like they would just go out of business because nobody would use their browser. And so it's not about being good or evil. It's about being smart or stupid and companies will tend to be smart and self-interested or they'll cease to exist. So what we've set up with NPM Inc is a situation where, doing bad things to the open source community, like regardless of whether it's good or evil, doing bad things to the open source community is stupid and will hurt the company's financial goals. Um, and that, that really comes down to like identifying a, a strategic way that we can grow our revenue in a way that doesn't sort of kill the golden goose of our open source community. And it, it it requires that we, you know, be smart, but it doesn't require that we be un, unflinchingly good at all times. Right. Which is actually it, like, you should be good at all times. You should definitely try to be very, very moral. I think that that's just like an important part of being a good person. Um, but if you're, if the good that you do in the world revolves around you never being greedy or selfish or, you know, having a a nasty thought like you're kind of in trouble because we're human beings and we will, we will do bad things. Like we will do self-interested things. It's just sort of part of the package. Um, And so I'm, I'm sort of rambling, I guess, but the, uh, I think that we have set up a situation with the NPM registry where like doing right by our open source community is, is essential to the company's survival and any company that would, you know, any, if we, if we IPO, if we're extremely successful, if we're, uh, if we get acquired by some larger software company as often happens, like any company that buys us is going to be buying us for some reason, presumably, and they, they won't be able to continue to get that value unless they continue to do that. You know, do what I think is the, is the morally right thing.
0: That makes sense. And I like the way that you explained it because, yeah, um, everybody acts according to the incentives that they're given. Um, Mostly, mostly, yeah. That's true, mostly. But, um, you know, if they don't act, quote unquote, rationally according to those motivations, then you don't completely understand the motivations. Sure, sure. So setting up a company where those motivations are to serve the open source community in the way that it does, that makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I've talked to investors who I, I, when we've, when we've fundraised for our series a or, um, our seed round, like we talked to a bunch of investors who clearly didn't get it, who were like, you know, why don't you just, you know, we're, we're sort of thinking of it as more of like a, a, freemium, um, open source product or we're thinking of it more as a software product and less as a service or community or kind of a, a social networking type of developer thing. Um, you know, they're, they're not interested in investing in us because I can't sell you a fancier version of the NPM CLI. Um, I'm not going to start dual licensing it because then you're just going to use some other thing like, right. and from their, so from their point of view, like this is not a model that makes sense to us. We're not going to invest. And that's great because the model that does make sense to them is not the kind of model that would work in this situation, mm-hmm. uh, with, with true. And with Bessemer, I think they have, they, they both have very, um, very clear view of like how to manage a developer focused, uh, community and developer tool. Um, I mean, they're invested in companies like automatic and Twilio and like companies that, that are extremely successful as an independent company. And at the same time are able to do a fair amount of good for developers.
0: Yep. That makes sense. Um, I'm starting to run out of time so I'm gonna ask my sure. next question and that is what are you working on now and in particular I'm curious like what's coming for NPM next year <laughs> uh,
1: what's coming for NPM right uh, next year well we're, we're working right now um, uh, we have some some pretty big announcements coming over the in the next couple of weeks a um, couple of weeks to a month and we're gonna be talking about that a lot more I don't want to I don't want to scoop myself or else my my um, head of marketing will be upset with me. Um, but, uh, I am, I am basically CEO, which in my case means basically chief product manager at NPM Inc. Um, so I'm, I'm writing a bunch of specs for uh, new features for the NPM CLI and the NPM website. And, um, uh, what's coming next. It's going to be, we are going to continue to reduce friction for people who are using JavaScript today. I think, um, the big, the big win for us. And one, one thing that kind of limits us as a company is, um, we, we provided a lot of value for people who are collaborating with modular JavaScript, right? That's, and if, if you're doing that inside of a company with proprietary code, you're probably pretty inclined to pay for it. Um, and to be able to use the same tools like that's kind of our pitch, right? What we don't provide a lot of value is yet it are for the people who are, um, using NPM, but not publishing with NPM, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. So if you're just sort of consuming a bunch of modules, I mean we have like 5.9 million people who are downloading packages from us and only like 300,000 of them are ever publishing anything or even have a registered account to do so. So my goal, you know, our goal moving forward as a company, my, my strategy is let's, let's figure out ways to actually improve the lives of people who are just consuming modules, um, and provide access to them for, for features that they might be interested in paying for. Um, you know, other, other kinds of things we can do to sort of make them empower them more. And then also say, well, if you're doing, if you want this kind of empowerment and this kind of benefit with your private code, that's what you pay for Right? So the, mm-hmm. the principle still st- stays very much the same where we just sort of give things away to the open source community. Um, and which has both, a uh, I like to look for both the, the good and the evil and where, where they, where they agree. That's probably the right thing to do. Um, And so the, uh, you know, when I say evil, I mean like, you know, self-interested, um, and also the, the community interest. Um, so if we just give this, these kinds of things away and these features away to all the people who are doing stuff in open source that has two effects. One, it's, it's nice. Like they'll like it, their lives will be better. I feel like I'm doing good in the world. Um, you know, I'm not like curing cancer or anything, but it's, it's not nothing. And, um, the second thing is they're more likely to want to use this on their private stuff too. And then they'll pay for that. And I make more money, um, so that means that we can continue to grow and kind of stay ahead of the curve for our uh, our usage. Because currently, about fifty five percent of all JavaScripters use npm. Currently, about half of all developers in the world use JavaScript. So, like that, five point nine million sounds like a lot of people, but it actually is just sort of in the mid range of its of its growth curve. Um, we're still a long way away from saturation. So what that means is my server bills are going to keep going up. Uh, so (laughs) it also means, it also means that our revenue will hopefully also keep going up. I mean, the, the company is growing. It's in a good spot. Um, but sort of what I'm working on now is, is figuring out the ways that, um, uh, that we can get more involved with more of the, uh, more of the JavaScript community and more of the development
0: workflow. That makes sense. Hey there, this is Charles Maxwood and I just wanted to talk to you really briefly about Freelance Remote Conf. I'm putting on a conference for people who want to go freelance or who are freelance and bringing in some of the experts from the Freelancer Show to talk to you about how to find clients, how to collect money, how to build your business, how to specialize, and much, much more. So if you're thinking about going freelance or you're already freelance and want to hear from the experts on how to go become or grow your freelancing business, then by all means, come check us out at freelanceremoteconf.com. All right. So the last thing is picks. Do you, you've been on the show before, so you know about picks. Um, What, uh, what things do you want to shout out that you've been enjoying lately?
1: Um, Gosh, I am going to, I'm going to, I'm going to keep this very sci-fi focused right now. I don't know if I've mentioned this last time I was on the show, I might have, but, um, uh, the first thing is there is, uh, well, let's do timely first. Um, Westworld, it's, it's a disturbing watch, but I think it's worth it. It's not just disturbing stuff for the purpose of titillation. It's an amazing, amazing exploration of like, story and personhood and you know, a lot of very deep things. And it's a very good, like fair play mystery kind of story. If you're not into it, I I recommend it. I give it five stars, two thumbs up, all the thumbs. Um, second pick that I want to shout out about is a trilogy of books called, um, the Imperial Roch trilogy. It starts with ancillary justice. Um, which is another, uh, just fascinating work of work of literature, um, epic in scope and, um, says a lot of very important and interesting things about humans and about what it means to be human and what it means to be a person and, and, uh, society and privilege. Um, and the third thing is a short story by Ted Chang called uh, story of your life. Um, it was recently made into a movie, which I have not had a chance to see, but I highly recommend reading the short story. If a, if a 10 hour TV show is too much for you, uh, especially with lots of blood and gore and, and nudity, or if a epic three novel, uh, work of, of literary genius is, is too, too deep for you. Um, the short story is probably about a two hour read it's really, really awesome and, uh, very brain bending. Um, and I hope that from what I've heard, the movie does it justice. So I'm really looking forward to that.
0: Nice. I've got a couple of my own that I'm going to shout out about. Um, the first one is, uh, last week was my birthday. I'm 37 now. I'm getting old. Hey, me too. Nice. Um, so my wife got me the Sphero BB eight droid that you can with your phone. And it's fun to just, uh, drive around the the office. Um, I I work from home, so it's my home office. It's also fun to drive around downstairs with my one-year-old. She crawls after it and gets excited. It's kind of funny. Um, I understand that you can also turn it on while you watch any of the Star Wars movies and it behaves differently. I haven't tried that yet, but I'm looking forward to it. So I'm going to pick that. The second one is um, I've become, over the last few years, a big fan of Brandon Sanderson, who writes a whole bunch of fantasy novels. And he has a series of short stories called Arcanum Unbounded. And they take place in his Cosmere, which is kind of a, a universe all on its own. And his different fantasy series all take place on different planets within the the Cosmere. And anyway, so he has this, this concept. And there are people that uh, can move between the different worlds and things like that. Um, all of his series kind of stand alone. So Mistborn and Elantris and some of the other books, they, they're all self-contained stories. So you can read them without understanding the Cosmere. But this set of short stories um, fill in some of the holes, um, you know, some of the things that don't get explained in depth because it would interrupt the story too much. Um, and it it specifically draws a lot of these parallels within the Cosmere. And so it's really interesting. So um, if you've read Mistborn, then there's a story of what happens to Kelsier, who is one of the main characters in Mistborn after he dies, um, because he kind of goes to this limbo cognitive world. And then um, after most people just pass through there and then go on to the spiritual realm, which is the afterlife. But he finds a way to stay in the cognitive realm. And so he has this impact on the rest of Mistborn that you don't realize is going on behind the scenes as you read Mistborn. And so it's really interesting. Of course, there are spoilers for some of these stories. So um, there's a short story that happens after Elantris um, has major spoilers. The Kelsier story has minor spoilers for Mistborn, not major spoilers. Um, but yeah, I'm really enjoying them. And so it's kind of a nice way to see behind the scenes. And he explains why and how he built some of these worlds and so it's 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 really fascinating that way too so yeah um if people want to see what's going on with npm inc or follow you on twitter or anything like that what do they do isaac uh
1: you can follow npmjs on twitter you can follow IZS on twitter Uh, i mostly don't write about javascript on my on my twitter feed i mostly write about other stuff um you can also follow our blog at blog.npmjs.org. And you can also always go to npmjs.com, which is our main website. All right. Oh, very- and uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that we have a weekly newsletter, which is actually fantastic. Um, I always know what's going to be in it, and I'm still really excited to read it every week. Uh, I, I am extremely reluctant to ever be involved with any kind of newsletter uh because I feel like it's just sort of more litter in my inbox, but it is really, really interesting and I look forward to it every week. Um shout out to the people here who are making that
0: happen. I'm a ruthless unsubscriber, but I might have to check it out. All right. Well thank you for coming and thanks for sharing your story. I think it was really interesting just to kind of see how we got in PM and what some of the story is behind where, where we are now. So thank you again. Thanks for having me. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot to learn more.